Almost every person has had an interaction with dreaming. The strange place away from reality where nonsense is the normal and expected. This week on Schedule for Launch, join me, Zach Walsh, as I talk with Raphael about their game, Lucid Sea of Dreams. Embark into the world of dreams as a lucid dreamer in this highly hackable system that works perfectly in any setting or as a standalone game. We talk about long-form play, Jewish folklore, and the desire to have people interact with your work. Welcome to Schedule for Launch, a podcast to discover the projects that you may have missed. This week, I am so grateful to be joined by Raphael. Raphael, thank you so much for coming onto the show this week. Thank you so much for having me. It's a huge time difference between us. Actually, I was a little bit worried about how we were going to schedule this. The last time I had a an interview with somebody who was so much further around the world from me, it was like two, three weeks of planning, and you rolled up and you're like, oh, I got this. We're going to go. We're going to go at this time because it's this much of a time difference. And I'm grateful you put the work in for me because it made my life very easy. <laughs> well, I'm glad it worked out. You know, I... Uh... I phone call with the U.S. pretty frequently, so that definitely helped. It's like, okay, my morning is their night. My morning is their <laughs> night, you know. Yeah, so halfway around the world, but we're having this conversation, and we're going to be talking about Lucid, Sea of Dreams. And I got to say that this has one of the most striking and eye-catching art styles I've ever seen. When you sent me the the cover art or the the one slate with that alligator bartender, I was immediately caught. Is it a bartender? I'm guessing it's a bartender. Yeah, that's Lyle Lyle, the uh, proprietor of the Reptile Room, a bar that serves up uh, distilled memories, emotions, and sensations. Oh, that's so cool. Okay. Thank you. Before we get really into what Lucid Sea of Dreams is, could you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Hi, everyone. I'm Raphael. Um, you can find most of my internet stuff at Games Garden. Uh, that's the <laughs> handle I end up using. So I'm an English teacher in South Korea. That's why our time difference is so big. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've been here about eight years, went to school here, uh, and now I'm working. So that's sort of the main interesting thing about me is that I've been living outside. I'm from the U.S. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm from Oakland, California. I'm moving back oh. in March. Yeah. Uh, Have you been? I've never, but I've I've talked. I've heard it's really nice. Yeah, it is. I mean, it, it's gotten so expensive to live there. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's a nice town. Um, yeah. So that's sort of, I mean, I have hobbies, I like games, <laughs> I like music, I like learning languages, um, and I like teaching. That, that's sort of what you need to know about me. Um, this is my first big game project, first Kickstarter, I'm calling it my debut. Okay. Uh, uh, so, yeah. That debut is obviously the aforementioned Lucid Sea of Dreams. Could you tell us a little bit about what Lucid Sea of Dreams is? Right. So when I pitched the game, I've been saying it's a rules light, hackable 
RPG about lucid dreaming, inspired by dreams, nightmares, Jewish folklore, and more. Um, you know, the, the elevator pitch, if you will. <laughs> and that's like, that's the really interesting thing too. You're taking a couple of elements that are really familiar. Most people are really, there's always been an interest in lucid dreaming and everybody's experienced a, a good dream and a bad dream, but it's that Jewish folklore piece. Could you tell me a little bit about that and how it kind of, how it got put into this game, but also some of the elements that are really present there? Of course. Yeah. Um, well, it's part of who I am. So I wanted to put it into the things that I do, um, you know, growing up, I didn't really see a lot of, uh, Jewish folklore or Jewish stories or Jewish heroes sort of represented in wider media. Um, and, you know, I was really super into fantasy um, yeah. as a kid. It's like, where's our Narnia? Where's our Hogwarts? Where's these uh, stories that kind of pull from, you know, Jewish folklore. Jewish folklore, yeah. Now, most of my friends here in Korea are not uh familiar with jewish anything i'm like yeah. the only jew in the village that i live in um <laughs> yeah so people think oh you live in south korea you must live in seoul i did now i live in you know the boondocks i live out in uh Sachan rural area okay. i've actually um, heard of Sachan. so oh really oh nice yeah i have a friend who lived yeah. there for a while okay cool yeah it's, I mean, it's airplanes and rice fields. That's, that's Satsun. Um, <laughs> lovely town. Um, yeah. So in terms of the Jewish folklore elements, um, yeah, I just really wanted to include it, but I also wanted to include it in a way that could be accessible to people who just aren't familiar with, uh, the culture or the folklore. Um, so that's how I ended up bringing in uh, the elements that I brought in. That's one of the things we were talking about it before the show started. And I've, I've mentioned it before on schedule for launch that it's such a shame because I, I didn't really grow up with any sort of belief. I've always been interested in folklore and I know very little about Jewish folklore, but the little that I do know is so interesting. And I think that there's a, it could have such a wider appeal if people could just see that representation. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I certainly think so. The players who have been play testing it, um, regardless of their background knowledge have all sort of enjoyed what I've been putting out there. Um, and you know, I'm just scratching the surface with, you know, it's a, it's a 44, 48 page zine. You can't put yeah. everything in there. Right. Oh, no, uh, no, not at all. So, yeah, I think I, I have visions of expanding it further to get more of this stuff in. But, yeah, there's there's a lot to work with. There's a lot to draw inspiration from and to learn. Um, so I'll give you uh, one example if you want. Yeah, sure. All right. So there's this story um, that a long time ago, King Solomon... Uh, had to build the temple, right? Mm -hmm. Folk story. Yeah. But there's, you know, a lot of stone and a lot of stuff that has to be done. And I'm pretty sure there was some prohibition on using iron tools or something like that. 
Um, okay. So King Solomon's like, oh, what am I going to do? Well, he heard a rumor that there's this little tiny worm called the Shamir that okay. can just destroy anything with its touch. Oh. Yeah, and he had this aha moment, right? Like, oh, this can do the construction. This is what I need. So there's a lot of stories of King Solomon, like, tricking uh, powerful beings, you know, Shadim or, like, those sorts of creatures. Um, yeah. I usually translate it as demons into English, but that doesn't really do yeah, it justice. Really hmm. So... You you might have heard of Asmodeus. Well, in Hebrew, uh, there's Ashmedai, just sort of maybe a similar character. Um, <laughs> okay. You know, so he tricks Ashmedai into like going out and getting this little worm, bringing it back to him, and that's how they were able to build the temple because it could just chew through all the stone or just dissolve it with its touch. Oh, it's pretty metal, like a tiny little worm that can just destroy anything. <laughs> I love um, the thought of it too. It's just like, like I said, it's just one of those things that I think I've heard the term before. I heard of Asmodai before, but no, no real context. So that's very cool. I, I'm really into it. I'm excited to learn more about them. So, yeah. Um, and you know, I want to say I I drew inspiration from the folklore, uh, and mm -hmm. then reinterpreted things. Okay. You know, for their, uh, so they can sort of fit into this world I've built of the Sea of Dreams. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the Shamir in folklore is a tiny worm that can break through anything, right? Mm -hmm. And in the game, the Shamir starts as a tiny worm and then can grow to be really, really big. And they can still chew through everything, but there's a lot of them and they they sort of chew through dreams and that's disperses ideas. Oh, that's very cool. Oh, I think so. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. I totally agree. I think that's such a good idea, but you mentioned right there chewing through dreams and that's where the core of a lot of this game is going to take place is in dreams. So can you talk a little bit about lucid and its setting and the characters and how they interact with the world? Oh, for sure. Um, so in Lucid, you know, I mentioned it's a hackable role-playing game. So what that means is I have this setting, the Sea of Dreams, that runs parallel to what we call the waking world. The waking world is where you eat, you live, you know, the world we live in. Yeah. Um, as a hackable game, you know, the default sort of assumes that the waking world is a close parallel to our contemporary world. Mm -hmm. um, but it could be Eberron. It could be, you know, a setting for D&D. It could be, yeah. uh, you know, a Star Wars. It could be, you know, really any uh, setting that you want to make it could be your waking world. Okay. Meanwhile, when your characters go to sleep... They're lucid dreamers. They are able to access this place called the Sea of Dreams, where, you know, thoughts and ideas and dreams all live. They can go to, you know, the individual dreamscapes of different, you know, sleeping people. Or they can go to these places that we call memescapes, which are 
like collections of ideas. Um, so, you know, there's a memescape for the idea of grim fairy tales. And it's a place where all the fairy tales are just kind of stuck together and it obeys the logic of those <laughs> fairy tales. Okay. And there's a, a lot of different worlds, right? Like, I think there was, from what I saw, there was eight, ten? Yeah, well, you know, there's, I included... Um, in the base game, yes. Yeah, in the base game, I included, us. I think, tools for generating dreamscapes. So some tables to help uh, game masters just make some dreamscapes. Uh, you know, because there's the yeah. dreams. Everyone's a little bit familiar with dreams. Um, and then in terms of the memescape type of location, I think I included four or five examples. Um, but then other, some other unique locations like uh, Isla's Tea Party, uh, which is a place where this sort of enigmatic rumor monger you saw the picture with the owl yes yeah that's, that's isla incredible oh okay yeah that's isla the owl so she just is like uh oh i'm not even sure the best way to explain it let's pause for just a second <laughs> let's see well let me pull her up so isla deals in information and she can't really lie. She doesn't really know how to lie. Um, she just loves to learn and loves to tell. Mm. So it can be a great NPC for player characters to talk to, to, you know, hear some rumors, but then they also have to be careful what they tell her because she will not withhold information from anyone. Uh, um, okay. mm -hmm. So she's like an info broker, basically. Yeah, an info broker but in the most positive, friendly way, because she's not really, she just likes having it, you know? Yes. She just really likes having the information and likes passing it around. Yeah, that that makes sense. So she also uh, is the place where a lot of, like, lost dream entities, I'm calling them rogue entities, uh, okay. go. She, like, takes care of them and uh, tries to teach them the you know, how to survive in the greater sea of dreams. Because, you know, if you yeah. get lost outside of the dream you were made in or the, you know, the bit of lore that you're from, uh, the memescape, then it's like, oh, what, what what do I do with my life? Uh, and she helps people. It's a big, scary world out there when everything's a possibility. Right. Um, there's, a, there's a couple other unique locations. Uh, there's Escher's Pearl, which I really love, which is a city that exists in the dream that was created by lucid dreamers. Okay. Um, and so it's a place where it's sort of a safe zone where okay. um, dreamers from different factions or different backgrounds all agree to kind of meet in a neutral location. Um, mm. it, has a, it has a bunch of little uh, fun places inside, but... I can't, like the the reptile room I mentioned before is there. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. So you had mentioned that this game is hackable, but there is a base game to it that is rules light and very interesting. Could you talk a little bit about player characters and that and how you go about building a character for for Lucid 
And my big ones are your your waking self, your avatar state, like uh, your waking self and the avatar state. Right. So like I mentioned before, you know, gameplay, when I run Lucid, I usually have a incident or hook in the waking world and in the dream world, and they're somehow in interconnected. Right. So that gives um, system wise, what that means is that the characters have a waking world identity. So, you know, they could be a student or, a, you know, a baker or just really any sort of mundane life. Uh, mm -hmm. If you're hacking it, you, you know, make a character for a certain setting. Um, yeah. But that's their sort of waking world persona. You roll up, uh, what is it, hopes, dreams, fears, things you dislike, things you like, defining memories. We have those kinds of tables. Yeah. Um, to kind of give a sense of what this person's all about. That's their waking world self. They have their waking world name. When they go to the dream world, um, they take a different form. And, you know, when they sleep and are dreaming, um, that form could be an animal or an idealized version of themselves or so many things. I think we put together a D100 table uh, to wow. help people generate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like a, a wriggling mass of balloon animals is one of them. So you can get weird. <laughs> you can get very weird. Um, but, you know, you're free to pick something a little more mundane if that's your uh, flavor of choice. Yeah. Um, so that's their avatar. Um, then there are these things called items. Um, yes. Which, you know, items usually when you think I. of items. Yeah, items with a capital I. So they're kind of conceptual items. You know, you start out with three things that your character can have because we don't have classes or skills or anything. So instead, these items are things you can use to try to aid your roles. So let's say you're calling uh, one of my one of my player characters. Uh, one of my players has this like toothless granny vampire. That's their dream avatar. Okay. Um, and one of her items is a like pointed boba straw. <laughs> so yeah. she'll just like run around and poke things and drain their blood with the straw. Um, meanwhile, someone else in that party, one of uh, their items is like a, a calming lavender smell. You know, so they're just, oh, I want to use my calming lavender scent to... Uh, chill people doubt right yeah yeah that's sort of how items are used mm -hmm. and those give bonuses to rolls right those give bonuses to rolls so the base mechanic is a dice pool and if you're familiar okay. with uh world of darkness stuff i think you could see oh this guy looked at world of darkness thought it was too complicated and just <laughs> shaved it down a bunch which is basically what happened that's totally fair, though. World of Darkness is a little bit complex at times. Yeah. Yeah. So we use the D10 dice pool with variable difficulty. So, you know, um, <laughs> you roll a bunch of D10, uh, and the base difficulty is three. Oh, I got like four of the things got a value above three. Then I got four successes. And oh, I got a one on one of them. So just four successes. Um, so the goal when you're 
rolling dice mechanically is to try to get as big of a pool as possible, right? Yeah. Um, so you can do that by using your items. You can do that by um, using your avatar self in an interesting way or by doing something that the game master thinks is a good idea. So one of the creatures that I pull from uh, from Jewish folklore are these things called mazikim. Uh, okay. They translate to being like harmers or things that give harm. Okay. Um, and I put a little spin on that. I thought, okay, well, they're described as being very numerous, but I want to give space for people to talk about emotions. This is a whole dream world. What if they're these beings that sort of uh, are keyed into a certain emotion? Mm. Um, and so, you know, if you're battling or trying to deal with a depression mazik, what should you do? Oh, maybe I'll give it some chocolate. You know, that could be uh, um, something where the GM might say, okay, here's you can use an extra die. That makes sense. Yeah, that's a good idea. Players love when you get bonuses for having a good plan and actually sticking to it. Yeah. Oh, that reminds me. There's so you you've dreamed before, right? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Well, do you remember like your wackiest dream? What was going on? Oh boy, I. Yeah, I think I do actually. Just. Uh... It was nonsense. I do remember a lot of my students being there and mm. being at a, an amusement park of some sort and trying to have to deal with that. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I remember it. Now yeah. I'm thinking about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, dreamscapes obey that logic, right? That, like, weird things that change a lot. Like, it's a it's an amusement park, but it's also my house, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. There's all that sort of stuff for dreamscapes. But if you've ever lucid dreamed, like you can do the things you want to do. I, I, I've had some experiences with lucid dreaming as a child. And personally, mm -hmm. what I found is that like, oh, I can try to do the things I want to do, but I, they get weird. They mess up like, oh, I want to fly. I'm flying. Oh, now I'm falling. Um, yep. So, you know, with, lucid you can do all the things if you want to make a mountain of jelly candy you don't need an item you don't need that to make sense with your avatar you just say i want to do that um and then it's a your influence so if we were talking about attributes we'll get into that yes. in a second but yeah, it's your we'll influence versus the inf uh the resistance of the dream okay so there's a tug of war yeah so you had mentioned it right there let's talk about attributes a little bit so the three main attributes are intuition, resistance, and influence. How do these cover the moves in the game? Right. Well, um, so to put things simply, intuition is your information gathering stat. Um, okay. So you use it to like really grok what's going on in the dream, tap into your own uh, intuition, right? Mm -hmm. It also determines initiative. Um, okay. So you're using it to gather information. Resistance is your defensive stat. So if you're, uh, if someone's trying to perceive you or to 
attack you or you know you come into a dream and something weird is happening that wants to change you that's all versus your resistance okay and then influence is your ability to uh influence the dream around you um or influence things around you and in the dream in you know the sea of dreams it can be i want to make a mountain i want to make fire yeah so you have those three attributes and that's what you're basing your dice rolls off of your attribute score you know one die one d10 per point that you have in that attribute then a maximum of uh two extra dice awarded by the uh game master if you're using your items or using an interesting idea okay so mechanically pretty simple um yeah that breaks down really nice too because it it makes sense intuition makes more sense than like dexterity when you're thinking about a dream or influence making more sense than i i don't know um strength for instance right and that was the thing too is like when I was thinking, okay, this works for the base game, right? This works if you're assuming that the waking world is, um, you know, a modern world parallel. Then yeah, yeah having the those stats uh, work for the Sea of Dreams stuff works fine. I've used them in the waking world as well, um, and there mm-hmm. you can make some interesting storytelling happening in the waking world too. Yeah. Yeah. Now you had mentioned there was some some combat can happen sort of with resistance and influence and intuition. And instead of health, you use a thing called lucidity. Could you talk a little bit about how lucidity differs from HP? Oh, for sure. Um, so you're, I mentioned that resistance is your defensive stat. Yeah. So if you were being influenced by something either a dream or some entity that lives in the dream or another dreamer uh who was trying to kind of bump you out or you know mess with you and they you know beat your resistance then that you know at a point for point basis goes to affect your lucidity and lucidity is your ability to just stay lucid in the dream yeah um so if you if your lucidity goes down to zero you either wake up and have trouble going back to sleep or something narratively interesting happens maybe you get you go into an unlucid dream and you're just not helpful anymore you're out for a bit yeah you're out for a bit um so those are the sort of things you know mm-hmm. i'm not super into a character death <laughs> that's fair um yeah i mean one could certainly play lucid in a very dangerous way if they wanted to but i yeah. wanted to give people the default option of you know if you're quote unquote defeated in a combat or just you fall through too many obstacles or something like that yeah um I'm making the game sound a lot more combat heavy than it is, but <laughs> it's not, but yeah, I, <laughs> if those I things happen <laughs> mm-hmm. um, that you wouldn't just, Oh, now you're dead. Right. Yeah. Um, it's about dreams. You wake up. Lucid has the 
approach of telling a different kind of story than character death and that stuff. It It's about telling stories about dreams, which are already a little bit strange and that, but character death isn't as important in something like this. And a mechanic that you've developed to kind of help with that is when you hit zero lucidity, you get that final act. So how does the final act work? What are some of the effects of it? Well, I thought, you know, oh, if you lose lucidity and then you're just kind of out, um, that's not a lot of fun. Um, So I wanted to add some things. You know, the first thing I added is like pooling lucidity. So your team members can sacrifice two of theirs to give you one of the to give you one. Yeah. Um, But then the other one was, as you mentioned, sort of final act, which is. Um, drawn from a fantasy series that I don't remember the name of. I think it's McKinnis or something like that who wrote it. Anyway, your lucidity's bumped down to zero. You're about to eject from the dream world and wake up and have a really rough night. You have the opportunity to do one more act of influence and make it something epic. So, you know, just at that moment, you can uh, do another influence check. I don't think the raw gives you any extra bonus on it, but it should feel a little bit like this is my final act of uh, trying to help my friends or something along those lines. <laughs> see you in the next one. Mm-hmm. For the see you in the next one, I really wanted to... Um, <laughs> you know, a lot of indie games are really like one-shot, one-shot friendly. Yeah. Or just like only good for one shots yeah um and i really wanted to avoid that i mean i i've made a lot of one shots it's fun for one shots but i've been running Mm -hmm. a campaign with it for nearly a year so i'm glad that it's sort of turned out to be something that's that can do varying lengths of uh play if that makes sense no i i think it makes total sense there are some games that are really good for playing one to three sessions and then you won't touch them for a couple of years and you'll come back to them. There are other games that are really good for telling long form stories. And Lucid has the potential, especially with it coming into itch funding really soon. It's it, our Kickstarter. Yeah, Kickstarter. That, yeah, that it has a long form narrative element to it, which I think is really interesting. We were talking before the show about you adding in some scenarios and stuff to into the main book to help promote that long format. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, I put in an adventure and, you know, content warning on that adventure. It involves like kidnapping. Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But it was one of the first one shots I wrote for the game. Um, and it's also the one that kind of hits the most beats in sort of showing what you can do. You know, they investigate all the PCs sort of go around and tell how they know the missing kid. And then from there, investigate in the waking world, trying to find clues and then investigate in the dream. Uh, and eventually they, you know, rescue the kid and everything's fine. Mm-hmm. But it includes hooks for future campaigns or future adventures so i just wanted to give people something they could play with yeah i like that too i find that 
that's one of the the strongest things for these long format indie games is that there's always almost always i should say some narrative hooks and a lot of times it's because of passion because the people making these games like yourself Raphael, are very very excited about their game and more than anything want somebody to play it so those narrative hooks are yeah and rightfully so these games are incredible and having played some of the games like the feedback that the excitement i've gotten when i've been like oh i played your game people get really excited and that's one of my favorite things to see from small designers like yourself so having those scenarios and just little things to keep people coming back is a huge thing to have in something like this yeah well you know i'm i've been having fun like the zine itself will include one but i have a different one up on itch now and I'm going to be putting more out, you know, it's, I think you're right. Like when you make a game for me, at least like the biggest thing is, Oh, I want people to play it. I really want people yeah. to play it and have fun. Like I know a lot of people, Oh, they just get a zine because it's pretty. And then it just sits on their shelf forever. It's like, Oh, yep. well, I really don't want that to be the case here. It's like, Oh, please play this game. It's fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm guilty of doing that. I have at my, I have a, a shelf that sits just above ankle level under my desk. And I got like 10 games here that I'm so excited to play and hopefully will be able to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think we've all like gotten there where it's like, Oh, I want to play. I want to try this. Oh, one day, one day. And then that day, well, it'll come when it comes. <laughs> um, but yeah, I hope Lucid is a game that um, people play. I've, I've had a lot of fun playtesting it and bringing people in to play it. Um, you know, whether that's my students in a very simplified, like, especially with the English, you know, using it in a way they can understand. Um, or, you know, I, I ran a session for some senior citizens, mostly my family and their friends. Um, and that was really interesting. But anyway, you know, play it. It's fun. So you've play tested this with like quite a wide demographic then. Yeah, I, I'm running right now like a special winter camp for some of my students, first graders. So I played it for people age eight all the way up to 78, you know. Um, wow. Yeah, I will say like when I'm using it for the kids especially in an esl setting like mm -hmm. um i'm simplifying things a lot we're not saying you know yeah. I'm, I'm not saying oh use your resistance use your intuition you know but for middle school students i do you know when i'm running it for middle school students it is more or less uh you know what it says on the tin mm -hmm. so let's talk a little bit about that because how I, I think it's interesting. How did you decide to bring this to your students then? Yeah, well, you know, I got into game making because I had a friend who was doing it and they're like, this is cool. You should do it. Um, and one of the, well, I've been using sort of role-playing games with my students since I came to this country because um, it's just a way to get kids excited. Um, yeah and sort of gamify the classroom a little bit. Um, yeah. 
But I, one of the things I saw a need for was being able to talk about your feelings um, and being able to talk about emotions. Yeah. And so that's why I brought in the Mazikim as being these sort of emotion eaters and perpetuators, you know, to give kids a chance to talk about, like, how do you deal with stress? How do you deal with anger? How do you deal with these different feelings? So th those were sort of the main considerations. How do I get the kids excited about English and talking? Um, so, oh, I need to have a modern setting. I can't have kids like talking about chain mail and DCs and this sort of stuff. Like, <laughs> um, and then also, you know, giving a place where students can talk about their emotions um, in sort of a fun way. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I will say... So I don't know if I got into this yet, but I did apply to an education PhD program, like a joint MABA uh, PhD. Oh, that's so cool. Um, yeah. So my, yeah, thank you. <laughs> the goal is to, well, the, the congratulations if I get in. Well, that's still to be no, told. I'm saying you did for now. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll, I'll take it. I'll take the good vibes. <laughs> Anyway, I, I want to create um, and research like how to use role-playing games in the classroom. I think there's a lot of great teachers out there. I think you've had some on here um, yeah. who are doing that work. So I want to look into that a little more from the uh, you know studying side of things. Yeah. Well, you had brought up some other people we, we had mentioned. Hi, Michael. Hope you're listening to this one. Raphael also knows you. Uh, but you had mentioned that yeah, obviously Lucid isn't Lucid isn't a solo. It's not all you. It's mostly you, but it's not all you. So you had said that you wanted to make sure that you said some things to some people while you're on here. Do you want to take your time to do that since we're getting close to wrapping up? Yeah. Well, first, I'd like to thank uh, the team members, uh, Doan Chang, who did the art, um, and my friend Lindsay Belton, who... Uh, recently was brought on as, uh, you know, the editor. Um, then also, you know, my friends uh, Robin, who has this great little supplement out for Cairn called uh, Salt Haven. Um, he did a lot of, he's been a great inspiration on this project. Um, and Brian, who does a lot of D&D supplements uh, through his website, Bumley Games. Um, ah, okay. <laughs> Yeah. Yep, I'm, um, I'm familiar with Brian. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, I've played some of their uh, their their supplements before. Or oh, that's so cool. I'll tell him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Let him know. Yeah, I think he has some salvage, like Eberron salvage stuff out, and yep, um, that's what I used. <laughs> oh, nice. Oh, I'm gonna tell him. He'll love that. And then also specifically with this Kickstarter stuff, uh, Matt Sanders. Uh, was doing a bunch of consults for first-time creators and gave me just so much good advice. So thank you to Matt. Uh, and also Orpheus Press, who, you know, looked through the game and gave some amazing feedback. So thank you. I feel really lucky that at this time, the Zemo community has just been so helpful and, like, uh, supportive yes. and really great. Yeah, they've been great. Those are all amazing people, too. So audience, if you get a chance, go look at them like all phenomenal work all great so like really do go look at them 
but Raphael, we're coming close to the end of the show here. We've been going for just shy of 45 minutes. So I got a couple questions that I like to ask at the end of every show. So here's the big one. What advice could you give to somebody who's looking to make their own game, but they have no prior experience, they don't know where to start, and they just really want to start working on it? Well, um, I've seen friends approach it from different ways. You know, my, it, if it was Robin, he'd make a supplement for, you know, an OSC, OSR, Cairn, Troika, these sorts of games. So take a game you like yeah, and try making a setting, try making an adventure, try a module, and just sort of see what that process is. And that could be a good jumping in point for, you know, making your own games at some point in the future. Hacking games is also a thing I see a lot of people do. So, you know, friend Brian made this uh, game called Pumasi, which is a hack of lasers and feelings. Um, yeah, everyone makes a lasers and feelings hack. Apparently, I heard that on a rumor. Lasers and feelings is an incredible game with a very easy dice mechanic system. So mm -hmm. it's very easy to hack and very fun. So yeah, but I think if you want to get into making your own system, um, there are some great Reddit groups. Look at. Uh, reddit design and uh trpg design that kind of stuff um for people who just have incredible knowledge and analysis of what a system is you know um but i would say just think about what your considerations are what you want to make so for you know dreams i thought oh dreams you want to be able to make anything you want to be aware think about what the the needs of your game are and that sort of guide you, if that makes That's sense. That's phenomenal advice. No, it makes perfect sense. That's phenomenal advice. There's a lot to cover. There's a lot of things to do there. So knowing what your system needs is important. Raphael, where can people find out more about you and Lucid Sea of Dreams? Well, uh, the easiest place to find me would either be on itch at Games Garden. Um, or the Games Gardener, same itch page, or at Falk Raphael on Twitter. And honestly, if you just Google search Lucid Sea of Dreams, you'll probably be able to find one of my things, hopefully. <laughs> it's like a pretty out there name. Uh, when I Google it, it comes up. I don't know if that's just a me thing. Um, yeah, your SRD is great on it. Or mm. no, SRD, oh my gosh, SEO, your SEO. SEO, right? I've been talking about SRDs too much on this show. <laughs> hey, you know, nothing wrong with a good SRD. Not at all. As always, audience, Raphael's links are going to be down in the description below. And if if I've lined up this episode right, you should be currently kickstarting this, actually. Yeah, it'll be, you know, February 1st to the 18th. But keep in mind, that's Korean Standard Time. So I'm in the future. Everything's one day in the future. Uh, so my <laughs> February 1st is your January 31st. Exactly. So everybody listening to this, if you are listening to this on launch of the first week, you have nine to like less days, nine or less days to go back this. So go do it. Lucid Sea of Dreams has one of the coolest art styles I've ever seen. The gameplay is 
really simple. The setting is super cool. And I think you can have a lot of fun with it. Raphael, thank you so much for coming out of the show this week and talking about Lucid Sea of Dreams with me. Thank you so much for having me. And audience, thank you for listening. It was wonderful to have you here, and I hope you learned a little bit about this game. Raphael and Lucid Sea of Dreams, they're scheduled to launch really soon. So go out there, back it, and support Raphael. Until then, and until on the next one, take care of yourselves. Have a good night. See you next time. Bye. Thank you so much to Raphael for coming on to the podcast this week. Lucid Sea of Dreams is currently funding and, like I said, is artistically one of the most interesting and just oh, beautiful games I've seen in a really long time. Lucid also works really well for game masters to implement weird dream stuff into their campaigns, so I highly recommend you GMs go out there and check this one out. It's got some super cool resources. Also, I want you all to interact with that alligator bartender. He's really cool. I like him a lot. And thank you, audience. If you're listening to this on release, then tomorrow, February 9th, is the anniversary of the podcast. So we got 40 episodes in a year and just under a thousand listens, which is absolutely mind-blowing to me. Schedule for Launch has always been about small advertisement, and while 1,000 listeners may not sound like a lot to some people, it's been a way better reception than I could have ever expected. So, as of this recording, I just want you to know, I don't have any plans for a one-year anniversary. I'm really bad at that kind of stuff, but I'm working on it. Maybe check the Twitter feed tomorrow. There might be something there. I'll try and keep you posted, promise. Once again, everyone, thank you for the incredible year. This has been one of the most rewarding things I have ever done. I can say that it certainly brought me a lot of joy during what has been a really rough time this entire pandemic and a lot of other stuff going on as well so i i can only hope that it's brought some sort of comfort to you and maybe you met someone due to some sort of interaction you've had here on the show here's to a better year though i'll see you next week we're going to be talking to nemo from zin never dies who i've been holding onto that interview for a really long time and it was a lot of fun. See you then. Take care of yourselves. Bye.